Empower Radio presents Out of the Fog. Join intuitive guide and spiritual teacher Karen Hager for lively, positive conversation with lightworkers, healers, and dynamic wisdom keepers. Get ready for inspiration and connection. This is Out of the Fog on Empower Radio. Here's your host, Karen Hager. Hello and welcome to Out of the Fog. I'm Karen Hager. Each week at this time, we gather for spiritual conversation and enlightening guests, and I am glad you're here. Time and distance are no barrier to energy, and that means no matter when you're listening, no matter how you found us, you are here for a reason. And I hope that something in the next hour lights you up and helps you move forward. Now, grief is a touchy subject. We often don't want to talk about it. We don't know how to talk about it. Maybe we don't even know how to do it anymore. My guest today is author and shaman Martin Prechtel, and he's here to share his wisdom about what happens when our modern culture has suppressed its ability to fully and honestly express our feelings of grief and how deeply grief in its essence is connected to praise. Are you ready to meet him? A leading thinker, writer, and teacher in the search for the indigenous soul in all people, Martin Prechtel is a dedicated student of eloquence, history, language, and an ongoing fresh approach. In his native New Mexico, Martin teaches at his international school, Bolod's Kitchen, a hands-on historical and spiritual immersion into language, music, ritual, farming, cooking, smithing, natural colors, architecture, animal raising, clothing, tools, story, grief, and humor to help people from many lands, cultures, and backgrounds remember and retain the majesty of their diverse origins while cultivating the flowering of integral culture in the present to grow a time of hope beyond our own. His newest book is The Smell of Rain on Dust, and you can find out more about Martin and his work at floweringmountain.com. Martin, welcome to Out of the Fog. Hey, how are you? Are you in the fog over there? No. Oh, um, we're in New Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's be- It's a beautiful autumn time here. The colors are changing, and you know the air has that special smell, that crisp autumn smell. Oh, no, it's wonderful where I am. <laughs> still the same thing. All the leaves are changing, and it's getting ready to get cold. But it's not getting cold, and usually it's froze out by now, so everybody's just crazy, getting more tomatoes and more hay and more everything. Oh my gosh! It's really good. Now, smell of rain on dust. <laughs> we, had, we had rain after a seven-year drought. We had uh, moisture since last February. It just stopped raining two weeks ago. So we're just like New Mexico. So happy you can believe it. Oh my gosh, that's wonderful. It's a blessing when that when that comes. Maybe that's a good place to start. How did you get to this place on your journey? How how what brought you to where you are now? Where I am now. Well, I wrote like five books on it. So. People really want to know they can read them, but I think uh, I was raised in New Mexico. I was raised in New Mexico when I was a little kid. With basically, if you look at with the real people from New Mexico, there are a lot of Native Americans here. I'm not like in other places, but I mean they haven't changed what they've been doing for millennia. And there's a lot of Spanish Americans here that came with the original uh, colonists men 450, 500 years ago. And the, I mean, it was like it wasn't like part of the United States. <laughs> Even the legislature was held in a kind of Sephardic Jewish Spanish, you know. Mm. And so we all spoke English as like a second or third language. 
My mother was a Canadian. Well, her parents, she wasn't a Canadian. Her, her, she actually raised in Michigan, to be honest. Oh. Uh, but um, her parents were from Canada. They were Canadian natives. And in, in those old-time days in the early 20th century, you know, it wasn't too hip to be an Indian. You know, it wasn't too great. So my grandfather, he moved down into, you know, was able to move into Michigan. actually became a car designer. And my dad is a very beautiful, crazy immigrant story. His parents are used to one-quarter Indian, too, but from United States. And his mother was Irish, and his father was uh, supposedly a Swiss guy, but it turns out, of course, it was not popular to be German because of all the wars, so he didn't say he was Swiss. But it's very unlikely that he was Swiss because he hated clocks and his machines. <laughs> and, you know, he's big and he's really dark, and he loved animals, and he refused to admit, fit into the modern age, so we were always very suspicious about this Swiss thing, but, <laughs> which turns out, I think, to be true. Anyway, my dad. Um, when he was very young, he went to World War II. You know, he lied about his age, became a flyer. When he came back from that horrible situation, he, he vowed never to, uh, you know, use any machines himself as much as, as little as possible. So he hardly ever flew after that because he was a flyer. But he, he joined up into a, um, a college with the GI Bill and got a, you know, he was got it paid. And he was going to a college that my mother was going to. It was the first Native American uh, of her stature. An age uh, to actually be graduating. She was studying away, you know, studiously in her fourth year. My dad was just starting. He was out there doing all kinds of nefariously, you know, non naughty little things that young men will do, especially to get out of war and they're a little crazed. And um, she met him and she was mad at him because she, he interrupted her studying one night, shooting shotgun in the dark or something. And my mother went down and gave him what for and then looked at him in the light and liked the way he looked and married him, you know. Mm-hmm. So. That's where I come from. My mother and father met in this college, and they. my father said, you know, let's get out of the civilization. Let's go to Wyoming. I'm going to become a paleontologist. And he started digging up old-time mammals. And my mother became pregnant in the Wind River Reservation up there with the Shoshones. And then my mother, being like her Canadian ancestors before, said, you know, Wyoming's going to be really bad in the winter. Let's move south and get warm. Let's go to New Mexico. So they ended up in New Mexico, which, by the way, is not warm in the winter. <laughs> no warmer than Wyoming. <laughs> We're 18 below here in, you know, in December, so it's like, uh, isn't that, you know, in the summer it can get hot. But anyway, it was kind of comical, I guess. But anyway, I was in my mother's cooker. I couldn't tell you much about it. And and then um, she got a job after she got a t- teaching certificate on one of the Native American reservations here, Pueblo people. And my brother and I were raised up here. And I grew up uh, really not in American culture. I mean, I didn't know it. You know, I thought I was being raised like everybody else. But I was raised in a real old-time Pueblo Situation, which are very rare because they don't allow outsiders in their in the reservations. But my mother was an Indian, and she wasn't their Indian, but the government being the government, you know, and Indians and Indians, so they stuck her with them. But they loved her so heavily that they allowed us to stay. So it was a curly-headed little blonde, you know, half-breed there, running around the reds. And um, I grew up speaking Karis, which is the native tongue there, and Spanish, but not the you know international type of Spanish, but the local type of Spanish, which turns out to be actually a kind of 16th century southern Sephardic Jewish Spanish, which is still spoken here, I speak it. And so uh, growing up on that, when I came of age, so to speak, at 16, and was you know, required to go off to res to go to school and all that, um, I started realizing the world was not as I thought it was, and then it was the hippie days, you know, the 60s, and everybody was stretching out. And a lot of things happened. You know, like I said, I've, read, I've written several books about it, but uh, that journey, as you call it, um, led me through, uh, eventually, you know, I was married at a very early age, and that fails, and uh, lots of stuff happened. But I ended up on the road 
and I ended up in a place in Guatemala, in a little town, or oh, not so little, it's a very large Pueblo of um, Mayan people, the Tutujil Mayan, you know, called Santiago Atitlan in Spanish. They, their name for it is Rumishushuchlil. And I became, um, well, you might say, a little cart pony from a, an old man who claimed that he was waiting for me to come, but you know, you know about these little guys, you never know what they're saying. And, and he became like my best friend in the whole world. And I stayed with him for many, 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 many years. Married in the village, I learned to speak to you really well, and I became a kind of an official in this town. And uh, Chivalio, it was the name of this man, he died in 1981. I took over all of his duties and so on. And then, you know, there's a terrible war in Guatemala, which lasted quite a long time and killed many, many, many thousands of people. We lost over 180,000 Indians in Guatemala. In our town alone, 1,800 people were killed. And um, many of my friends were killed one afternoon. They also got me with a bullet, but it didn't, didn't kill me. It just splintered my chest. And I, uh, you know, finally got the idea. You know, Chief Leo, before he died, says, you know, you should leave and keep the seeds alive of what we learned here in the land where they're sending the bullets from. And I, I didn't do it. I stayed. You know, I had two little children then and was married in the village. I couldn't imagine living anywhere else. But when the, when, when the bullets start flying heavy, I... I did leave. Um, it was very difficult to leave because I didn't have the right paperwork for my family and everything and all, you know, all these requirements. Eventually did make it back to the United States where we were extremely poor and struggled really, really, really hard. But uh, at some point, there was a Navajo later, remember, in uh, Albuquerque. We finally got back to New Mexico with all the legalities. Anyway, so when she, um, she came down with something, got very, very ill, none of the doctors could heal her. And so they were sending out for all these medicine men and Stuff. And there was this one lady who just happened to know me because I was I was silversmithing in this kind of sweatshop. As, I, as a child, I grew up in the village of silversmiths, so I was a good silversmith. Still am. And um, well, I think I am anyway. I was just polishing a bunch of silver for my wife. I have it on my brain. Anyway, so I, I, um, this lady says, could you please come to the hospital and see what you can do for this woman? She's not making it. And, you know, the lady was young. She was like 28 or something. So I went in there. I, I divined what was going on according to the, what I had learned and known. And I asked the doctor's permission to do this and that and the other. And in those days, New Mexico was very open to outside because of all the multiculturalism and stuff like that. And I helped her quite a bit, and she walked out of there after a week. And so after that, people started lining up. And it was pretty terrifying, actually, because I was really actually knowledgeable how to handle all that. But became fairly well-known locally as a, what you might call a shaman healer. And after that, uh, I got a job with the government actually mediating between Indian healers and surgeons, uh, you know, uh, white American surgeons. I'm all white when I talk about, you know, but they're American surgeons. Mm -hmm. And then I, um, you know, uh, things go how they go, and the lady I was married to and all that, she went back to Guatemala after the heat was off from all the wars and everything, and the children were grown up. And then I became, uh, I, I started, uh, you know, sort of wondering what, it, what was life was going to be, and uh, Robert Bly, you know, the great American poet, asked me to go teach in some conference he was doing, which I was very trepidatious to do. And I said, no way, I'm not doing that. There's all these crazy guys running around reading Rumi and I'm beating drums in the forest, and I'm, you know, from this <laughs> wild New Mexico land. So I did go, and I was very impressed, actually. I, was, I blew my mind. I was, like, expecting something, you know, I mean, it was crazy, and it wasn't, it was a lot of that stuff, but there was also a lot of sincerity. I mean, the... It was right after the the earth, big earthquake in San Francisco. The mayor of San Francisco was there. Obama was there. He was one of these uh, senators or something from Illinois. All kinds of people. And I was doing what I did, and I talked, and, it, and people were very gracious to me. And over time, you know, I became...
men's things. But after a while, I started thinking, you know, there's nothing that's going to change if these same guys just keep coming to these conferences. We have to have the women, we have to have the men, we have to have the whole culture. It's a crazy bunch of people. And so I, you know, I started doing my own thing on all over the place in Europe and the United States. And uh, at one point, I was, uh, you know, and that's, a, like I said, that's not really all important. What is important is, is, is the understanding of the, the great shock of realizing what is going on in modern civilization after you come from a place where the people are living in a totally uh, seed-oriented agriculture, you know, like basically 14th century way, and, and extremely um, friendly with the ground and each other. And then, you know, being this terrible wars come, which are not propagated by the people themselves, but by all sorts of outside forces that have all these agendas that are using Indians as cannon fodder. And then ended up in the United States and seeing how little the people in the United States in particular had any idea what was really going on in the rest of the world, you know, good or not good. And then having the, the uh, shock of, uh, I don't know if it was a shock, really, but the amazing uh, discovery that one time I was, uh, you know, I was going to go, I was doing a talk in St. Paul, Minnesota, on um, gang conflict, which I used to deal a lot with, and I used to work a lot in prisons and stuff in the old days until I got this big idea that we should actually make culture instead of just going and putting Band-Aids on people. We should try to make culture that's worth living in so that we don't have all these prisons and things, which, of course, is a grandiose impossible, never going to have an idea, but definitely one worth pursuing. So there I am doing this, and I'm talking away, and I'm on my way to this um, gig I have, and I stopped off to, uh, to at a funeral of the father of somebody I knew in Chicago, and when I went there, I was so aghast. They, were, they never mentioned the dead guy, for one thing. And second, was everybody was talking about their NASDAQ and their stock market accounts. And I'm like, wow, this is very pretty. Did I get in the wrong place or something? What's going on? You know, and all these characters, you know, um, and, you know, just uh, commercially oriented business people. And, and so I just, uh, there was a tree there. So I began to make a ritual like I know how to do. And a guy came up and broke one of my ribs with his foot. He kicked me really hard. This is like, not a punk, you know, this is like an erudite guy with a little tie and a bald head and, uh, you know, was a CEO of something or other. And I realized what I had been saying all along very casually was that when grief is not metabolized by the culture, it resides extremely closely to the skin of the people in the form of violence, either exported violence or internalized depressional suicidal violence. And so the next night when I was talking, uh, you know, I was had this whole time of people were thinking about I was going around. I mean, I can't tell you how many where places I was going, traveling, and all of a sudden, um, I said, "You know what? I'm going to talk about grief. That's what I'm talking about. I'm going to talk about the inability to praise and the inability to grieve as being one and the same thing, because these guys at this room couldn't do it. But they, of course, were the least of my worst. I was just looking at everything around me for years." And so I started talking about that, and there was a really nice fellow who was an old rocker, I'm sure you remember back in the 60s and 70s, nobody wore ear protection, you know, they were running all these levels on the sound systems, and they were all deaf, you know, by the, by the 80s, <laughs> so, the 90s, you know, late 90s, and this guy was pretty deaf, and so he had him up a little high, you know, so he could hear, but he put a dad into the machine, and, uh, you know, in those days they were using dads instead of all this uh, cyber stuff, and... So just out of you know habit, and I saw him talking away, and then some guy came up at the end of the talk and stole the dad, and then started bootlegging copies of the talk and selling them all over the world. And somebody was uh, sent me one. Finally, I said, "Man, you should hear this guy. 
he's, he really, he's thinking along your lines, you know, blah, blah, blah. I said, well, it's me, man. What are you talking about? <laughs> so I finally found the guy who was doing it. I said, what, what are you up to? And he said, oh, I'm sorry. I, I just, he was just sitting there. I just thought I could do it. I said, yeah. So what are you doing with the money? He says, well, I'm pocketing it. Okay, well, let's do this. You keep selling it. That's fine. But don't pocket the money. Give the money to this youth uh, thing that I was running. Oh, I wasn't the only one. A lot of people, they're sending these kids to these conferences and stuff and pulling them out of, you know, South Central and parts of Philly and all that who are in big gangs. And then I'll be happy and I'll be fine with me. So this went on for a while. And then finally he got tired of all that and he asked me if I wanted my tape back. And I said, sure. So I put it out in a, a little CD form. And it was a terrible reproduction. And it wasn't really my best talk, I have to tell you. It was like, well, you know, it was what it was. And unedited, you know, all the burps, and you know what's in there. And so um, it, it goes out. But the thing is, I started getting, I'd written all these books that were, you know, me telling everybody what it was like in the old days and, and you know, what what could be to make a new culture happen, so on and so forth. But um, I started getting these love letters from all these people from all walks of life. People were filling holes in the road. You know, gay women in Nebraska. I got this one gay judge wrote me this note, uh, lesbian lady. Uh, of in love with this tape and all this thing in my grief. All these guys from prison, Soledad prison, a big group of guys started using us there. After they got security clearance for it, and um, all over the world, all kinds of things. People from India, people from China, and I thought, I can't believe this. I what? I had no idea this was like something to think about. So uh, you know, after a while, there was a publisher who, a wonderful guy named Richard Grossinger, who runs North Atlantic Press, and I was on the road in California. He called me. He says. I want to make a book out of this, and I want to write it. And I said, you know, to be honest with you, I'm not ready to write it because I really don't think I'm uh, that this is, belongs to me. I think it belongs to the people. And I also don't think that I'm going to be a person who, who's going to be able to deal with this subject adequately. I just know what I know. And he said, well, I don't care. All your other books, I'm going to... He says, well, can we make a deal? And I said, okay, I want to change publishers. Now i got these other publishers. If you keep everything I've ever written alive and on the shelf, then I'll write you a book. And if you, write, if you publish my new book that I'm putting out, then, and it looks really good, then I'll do it. And he did it. He did all that. So I finally came out and kept my promise. And the name of the original CD was called Grief and Praise. And the book is, of course, the, the new book, The Smell of Rain on Dust and Grief and Praise, is nothing at all like the, the CD at all, which, you know, is everywhere now. It's on iTunes or something. I don't, I don't, pay, I don't run the computer, by the way. I don't even know how to plug them in. So this is just kind of silliness, but... I'm just saying, you know, this is how we came to where we are today in a nutshell, but it's really leaving out a lot of details. But yeah. I just thought I'd tell you. And so here we are back in my old New Mexico, and I've written this little book, and it's, it's going to fifth printing in, um, in, in three months, four months. It went. So mm-hmm. I was very proud of it. And um, I wrote it not for me, for a change. I wrote all the other books I wrote in order to have... Um, make sure that the things in there did not get lost because they were going extinct because of what modern culture has done to all these mind things and all these old things. This book I didn't write for that. I wrote for the people themselves. And that's why it's not all-inclusive, not everything, as many chapters I left out. I just didn't want to intimidate uh, as much as my books usually do with big sentences and lots of uh, pontificating. I, I want to give a gift to the people who had been so kind to, uh, to love what I was thinking about this matter. When they lived in Guatemala, the, the effort of grief uh, was not with the Guatemalan culture. Don't get me wrong, I'm talking about Tutil Maya people, there's many types of people in Guatemala. And it was just a constant, constant reality, this capacity to praise life, 
to praise the sun when she comes up or he comes up, when the sprouts of the ground come up, when someone dies, when anything. There's all this praise and grief and praise are one, like one word. There's not even any difference. And the incapacity of the modern world for people to praise unless they want to get some uh, more work out of you or they like your dress or they're trying to hustle somebody you know, into bed or something. They don't really know how to praise properly. And when you find people who are ready to, uh, in a situation of loss, which if you're alive, you're going to be, the, the capacity to feel and in praise is looked upon very sarcastically. And the people just wander around in this kind of various forms of petrification or sarcastic smiles, you know. And so I thought, well, you know, taking a big chance here, but, you know, I mean, like, the, original, the guys that are distributing the book originally, which are not the publishers, it's this other group, they said, we don't understand what grief has to do with praise. I said, I know, I wouldn't have wrote a book about it if everybody understood it, you know, so <laughs> open the book and read about it, you know. So there you go. Wow. Well, now I know we've got about five minutes before we go into the break, but you said something. I'd love to just touch on this, and then we'll hit it again when we come after the break. You said that when grief isn't expressed, that we wear it so close to our skin that it comes out in violence. And I know from reading the book, The Smell of Rain on Dust, that that it that it comes out, it can manifest in addiction. It can manifest in illness and paralysis in our yeah, lives. Yeah, that's self-violence, you know. Mm. It can also... Um be exported into dropping bombs in Iraq and Afghanistan and Ukraine. I mean, it can result in bad business practices that cause all that stuff to happen. The exportation of violence um, because of the incapacity for a people to grieve. But with that having been said, I mean, the idea is, is that you have cultural grief, you have ancestral grief, and then you have personal grief. And normal grief is normal. I mean, grief is not, it's not like, saying, okay, we're going to cure it. We'll ha- have a life someday with no grief. I said, well, then, you know, you'll be something out of a uh, science fiction program. Because life is all about loss, but grief is, is the medicine for that loss. Grief is not a problem. Grief is not the sorrow. Grief is the medicine. So people that have grief culture awareness are always turning all their losses into beauty in order to make more life instead of, you know, just trying to get through it and then forget about it. So when that is not taking place and that accrues and then it builds up kind of like a great big, uh, you know, prime force, a critical mass that's got to blow or it's got to be exported. And usually most people don't export it onto their neighbors, but they do it, as you very rightfully said, with some sort of addictive behavior, whether that is substance or whether it's movies or whether it's eating this or doing something that's bad for you or culturally where the whole culture is doing something that's bad for the earth because it's addictive. And that keeps makes you so you can try to fill one hole after you've dug another hole, and then you've got Western expansionism and all that, and you know everything rolled into one. So, yeah, violence uh, in in its broadest uh, sense, you know, even passive aggressivity and all that, usually comes from an incapacity for people to grieve. But we don't blame the people because you know it's it's a back burner event in modern culture because you can't make any money on it. You know, so <laughs> it's a form of generosity, really. I mean, because. You're trying to give uh, beauty to life through the capacity to praise enough life, to praise the life that gave you enough life to have felt something well enough to have lost it. So people have to have loved in the first place to feel grief. Otherwise, it's just disappointment when you lose them. Mm. Love is what's the basis of it. And it's allowing maybe that. I know we're sailing into the break. Darn it, I can already tell I want 15 more hours with you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> hey, I got a school. I tell you, I got one. A school is supposed to go four years. It goes, you know, I don't know, what is it, 60 days a year for each student. 
And I got students now who've been coming 13 years, and they won't go away. <laughs> and tell you what, they say, "Oh well, we're just finally starting to understand." I said, "Oh no, we got 400 students, you know." And I'm like adding them on all the time. I said, "What am I going to do?" <laughs> <laughs> well, as we go as we go sailing into this break, let me let you know that you're listening to Out of the Fog with Karen Hager, and I'm talking with Martine Prechtel. His new book is "The Smell of Rain on Dust: Grief and." Praise. You can find out more about Martine and his work on his website, which is floweringmountain.com. And when we come back, Martine, I want to talk to you a little bit about the differences in the way that we grieve from what you saw from being in the village in Guatemala, the difference between the way grief was expressed there and the way in which we express it here, all buttoned up, all at the funeral, as you say, all talking about the NASDAQ quotes and the everything there's a there's a such a difference isn't there in that way that we are maybe allowed to express i'm you were talking about your um like your the your parents and where they came from i'm from a dutch and german background we are very oh, yeah. quiet we don't want to do anything that's embarrassing and so <laughs> you know grief for me i might go oh i feel a little sad and then everything else gets you know what i mean oh dear a kleenex and then i'm done and and you're talking in the book about well, the thing it. is you're not done because it's going to go somewhere it's a substance oh. it's, it's like einstein it's not going to leave it's going to come out you have yep. children, it's going to be in your grandkids, but it's going to show up somewhere. Mm. No, it's and, and you're right, and it can be generational. All right, so let's take that break. We'll be right back with Martine Prechtel after this. Hey, Larry, mind if I sit down? Nope. This coffee tastes like uh, coffee. So what's going on? Not much. What's new? Not much. Okay, but can you please put the newspaper down while you say not much? What newspaper? This newspaper. Oh, dude! What happened to your face? I see one, two, Ow. three, four, five, six... Ow. Dude, what is Ow. this? Eleven pieces of toilet paper stuck to your face? I'm shaving in the dark to save energy. I'm helping the environment. That's a dangerous way to help the environment. Well, sometimes you have to sacrifice yourself for the greater good. Dude. There's an easier and safer way to help the environment without sacrificing yourself. Go green, go public. Take public transportation. It's good for the environment and you won't have to live behind a newspaper. Wow. But for now, put the newspaper back up. A message from the public transportation systems across the country. To learn more, visit publictransportation.org. Come to the forest. It's a place not so far away. A place where you don't have to mow the lawn or babysit. I saw lizards and squirrels and bugs. Ladybugs, caterpillars. It's really cool, actually. A place where you don't have to make time for free time. Lots and lots of kinds of species here. Out here, you may even meet the mysterious creature known as the other you. The enchanted you. It's magic what flowers do. The adventurous you. My favorite tree, yes, is that one. The free-to-be-me you. <laughs> Ask your parents to take you to this not-so-far-away place. Come to the forest, where the other you lives. But first, stop by discovertheforest.org. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. I'm home. I'm home and 
and I love it. I'm home where I belong. It's always nice to come home, but these days, many Americans are at risk of foreclosure and losing their homes. Fortunately, help is available. Making home affordable is a free program from the U.S. government that has already helped over a million struggling homeowners, and we want to help you. I'm home. I'm home. And I love it. I'm home. I'm home. Find out now what your options are. Go to makinghomeaffordable.gov or call 1-888-995-HOPE. The sooner you act, the better chance we can help you. I'm home. Brought to you by the U.S. Treasury, HUD, and the Ad Council. And now back to Out of the Fog with Karen Hager on Empower Radio. EmpowerRadio.com. Welcome back to Out of the Fog. I'm Karen Hager, and we're talking with Martine Prechtel. His new book is The Smell of Rain on Dust, Grief and Praise. You can find out more about Martine and all his work at Flowering Mountain. And of course, I invite your feedback, your comments, and you can reach me through my website, which is karenhager.com. I I love to hear from you. Martine, we were talking a little bit before we went to the break about how when grief is not expressed, it always comes out some other way. So my desire not to be embarrassed, my desire not to even feel something really big always turns in on some way. And that can go from being personal to then being generational to then affecting a whole society. And I wonder if you can share a little bit about how grief would have been expressed in the village where you lived for so many years. What was it like when someone was grieving? Well, first of all, um, as you well know, grief is not just about when somebody dies. There's, uh, you know, you can grieve the loss of your limb and being amputated or the loss of your country, like if you're relocated or have to flee, um, the loss of a lot of things. Um, nobody in the earth is not going to have the grief of the sorrow of having lost someone they love. Um, things are natural. You don't lose your parents. Um, God forbid you lose children. Um, but uh, when the village, in the village where I used to live, I mean, the people were preoccupied, spiritually speaking, I mean, they were preoccupied with daily goings-on of trying to uh, earn a living, eco living, which was not an economic living like in the United States where you worked for a boss, but people were farming and fishing. Um, and it was fairly my hand-to-mouth, but they still spent about 50% of their, what would call the gross national income of the tribe. It's a very large village, but it's about 42,000 people, and um, or 30,000 when I lived there. But they... Um, would uh, spend at least half of their earnings or whatever they had uh, spiritually trying to make up for all of the damage they caused the world and the earth because their idea was that they had an agreement with the natural world which was deified, and therefore there were certain rituals and certain procedures and courtesy. is basically a form of courtesy of how you ate, how you went about things, how you did this, and these things had to be done, those things had to be done. Modern world thinks that's a lot of silliness because everything goes on with or without them. But you really are not a human being unless you approach the so-called animate, the inanimate world with the respect it deserves. And therefore, they uh, treat each other the same way. This is not to say that people aren't hard with each other and that they, you know, they're not silly like all human beings, but they knew they were. <laughs> when it comes to grief of loss, it was considered an obligation. That it's not so much that grief is expressed, but that praise kicks in at some point with the deep emotion 
so that the person who dies, you know, uh, their soul can get to the next stage of living, if you will. The idea was that these are canoe people. They live on a lake, and so they're very famous for their canoes. And so when someone died, they're the, what would be, I guess, in modern terms, be called a wake or a memorial during the time where they're fixing up the body of the dead person. All the people who are related or friends or anybody would require, would feel required to go to make a canoe. They said and it's, called, it's a, a metaphorical canoe of people lined up during the, the the time they begin to not just mourn, but they begin to tell a story about everything, and then they begin to sing, and then they begin to grieve, and everyone gets up, and everyone says, and everyone gets up, and everyone says, and everyone gets up, and everyone says, big, small, old, young, doesn't matter. Um, and in the meantime, there are two women, or three or four, if you're lucky to be that esteemed, who are binding up the dead person in order to turn them into a seed. And so they tell the story of everything that ever happened in the universe up to the day you were born backwards. And so they essentially tie up your umbilical cord so that they send you, and when they, and when they put you in the ground the next day, they're putting you then as a seed, which the sun's soul is supposed to pull you out of the ground like a plant and make new life out of you. So instead of just reincarnating into a person, you've got 400 days to turn into a, uh, another kind of ancestral, a natural force like a storm or like rain or like wind or hurricane or uh, growing plants or a great big run of fish for the people that causes great benefit to the living, not just people, but all natural beings. So the thought is, is that if not enough tears and not enough feeling is expressed at the time when this is all going on, that the person's canoe is not worthy enough to get to the other level of life, which is called the beach of stars. Mm. They call the beach of stars. And when you get to that beach of stars, if you're a dead person's soul, you do not turn around and you cease to be a human being. And the last happy ancestors start to turn you into a natural force, which is a form of initiation, just like you go through when you're a teenager as a human being. And you're not allowed to turn around until 400 days have been expressed and that's happened. So the living are the ones that make it possible so that there's enough energy source of grief to make that happen. Now, what happens uh, then after that wake, and they put the person in the ground, and they put all this clothing, they call it layers. Oh, man, it's amazing. They uh, Usually, you know, the people closest to the ones who have, uh, they've lost, usually are wandering the village streets for a while, you know, and they wander, and they bellow, and they sing, and they complain, and they just let her loose. And everybody in the village, you know, they go through the village streets, you usually have five or six or even 20 people who are kind of holding you up and just as you go along. And, you know, you're not worried about your head's going to crack in the ground. You're not worried you're going to do something or say something that's going to cause any big problem. Everyone's going to go out and listen to you for sure. No one's going to judge it. No one's going to say, this person is unworthy of being an avocado farmer. We should fire him, you know. <laughs> There's nothing to fire anyway. He owns the avocados. But... The thing is, uh, the person is saying, oh, this is what exactly what's going to happen. The, the person they love so much who has died is going to get where they need to go because of the beauty of the grief the person expresses. Nine times out of ten, the person will go a day, maybe two days. By the end of the stint of this grief expression, as you call it, they don't call it expression, it's called making beauty. Mm-hmm. Then um, the person begins to start praising life. It's almost, almost the case. I've never seen it fail. Uh, by the time that happens, all of a sudden they're they're talking about God. They're talking about the beauty of the land, the beauty of having been with their brother who died, the beauty of their mother, the beauty of this and the sadness of that time, but how great it is we're given life at all, and blah, blah, blah. And on and on and on it goes. And then they finally, of course, conk out and sleep for like three days, and people are still watching over them. So, 
that, I mean, I, when I was going to Guatemala, I was, by the way, I was never going to Guatemala. I just sort of ended up in Guatemala. But I was in southern Mexico heading just south to get away from all the craziness. It's another story. But I remember I missed a bus. I, I didn't get on a bus. I was supposed to get on. I got on a really cheap, funky one instead. And it turned out the bus, if I had been on it, I'd have been killed because the entire bus went over a ravine and caught on fire and killed everybody on the bus, including the driver. And as we were going by, all the people in the bus I was in made the bus driver stop, and they all got out and they grieved. They were all Masatec Indians. And I saw, and they didn't know anybody in the other bus except for two ladies knew somebody was dead in the other bus, but everybody got down and did it. And I was watching, I said, wow, these are people, real, real people. And so when they got to Guatemala, in all these different Indian villages, it was it, it was an institution. Everywhere you went, it was an institution. And I'd have to say that modern culture in Guatemala and the non-Indian culture in Guatemala thought it was silly and didn't think it was something they should promote either. And neither did the left wing. The left wing didn't like it either because, they are, you know, the Christians' idea was is that when somebody dies, they're going to a better place. So what are you crying about? But, of course, no one's crying about the fact that the dead person's going to a better place. They're crying about their friend is gone. And so the grief of that, uh, was what uh, that's what you would see, you know, and a lot of outsiders never understood that. They just thought somebody maybe had gotten too drunk or something was wandering around the streets being obstreperous. That never was the case. It was always the case of this grief being expressed and was looked upon the fact that, okay, there will not be a feud now. There will not be a war. People will not have one and need revenge. Um, you know, something good is going to come of this. And, you know, the person who is uh, suffering as a living person left behind eventually will heal, and their life will go on, but they will be a different person. When you come to the States, you know, it's not just about people being repressed and not able to express grief. It's about the fact that they don't really trust the public to hold them up when they would do such a thing. I mean, I don't think all the people in the United States are evil or, or, you know, that repressed necessarily if given a chance. But the thing what happens is there's just no culture, there's no village, there's no people. You, You know, you couldn't be rolling around your street everybody would, would laugh at you or call an ambulance, you know, and say there's something wrong, get some Thorazine in this person. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you would end up, you know, re- um, having to shove that down in your craw and just get back to work. But it's going to, their grief has got to go somewhere. I mean, it's natural. It's meant to be there, and it's meant to heal the whole society. It's meant to heal the individual. So the grief is, though, I have to say this word, we keep saying grief and grief. And in America, I've had so much trouble with people using the word praise. They always, they always want to talk about grief, but they, they have more problem talking about praise than they do about grief. So I said, you cannot talk about grief with me unless you're going to talk about the capacity to praise life and praise life by the way you walk, the way you do your architecture, the way you wear your clothing, all the things everybody are calling eco-friendly. The motivation for Native people where I come from is not because it's eco-friendly, but because it was the agreement we made with the Holy in the first place. And so we have a deified version of that instead of it being, you know, something that's scientifically extrapolated. So I say, you know, grief and praise have to go together. They're left and right legs of the same uh, organism called the heart. Well, in that, I'm imagining I had a friend pass away uh, last summer, and the whole thing was very neatly packaged and very quietly done and very, you know what I mean? It was all, we were all quite civilized about the whole thing. And there's a way in which when we make it all tight and tiny, when we're all alone, I mean, that grief, just like praise is wild and savage and rolls out of you. It has so much to it. It's big and it can't stay in the box. Uncivilized. Yeah. And so, and we don't have that. Like I, I think culturally we don't have that 
freedom and we don't have the support. We don't have the people who walk with us and watch us for three days to be sure we eat and keep warm and don't fall off the cliff. So that's where the, that's where the, the approach has to be made. It has yeah. to be made to remake culture so that you do have people like that. Instead of being afraid of the public and where you're ladder climbing out of this mass of people you don't really, really like, maybe making culture maybe is uh, one of the major ways to go toward it, see? And the thing is, I believe that uh, that's possible, but I don't think it's going to be possible unless you have a um, a certain cadre of people who are willing to bestow on the rest of the population what they themselves will never see and have never received themselves. So that takes a lot of courage. In other words, the, the point is that it's not that modern people don't have it. The modern people descend from people who had to have had it or they wouldn't have survived this long like they have. But it's just that it's no longer um, something that can be sold, and it's business-wise inefficient. And we have to remember, too, you know, from around the time of the, all of these Chaldean, um, you know, meetings and stuff where people were trying to decide what was a Christian, what was a Jew, and who was this and who was that, it was against the law. It was made, it was made against the law for all the wild tribes of Europe to grieve because they were like wild grievers. Man, you can read all of these old accounts of it, even during Roman times before the Romans became Christians, which they did. And they put the laws in when it was made, like, if you were caught mourning at a funeral, you know, they locked you up or they gave you a certain amount of lashes and everything because that was considered pagan. So the point is, this got inoculated into the, uh, the culture a long, long, long time ago that, you know, um, being sad is uneconomical. But, you know, grief is not about sad. It's a form of ecstasy. And it's a form of uh, ecstatically relating to what's divine in the world. And if you don't have that, then, of course, you're basically what would be known as a depressive. And if you're depressive and you're functioning, and then people start to think that the whole culture is normal, and there's a, a gigantic culture of depressive normals <laughs> who can't grieve, and then you've got war, you see. And so what you end up doing is, is if you can't do it, uh, the grief uh, as a person, because you don't have a culture that allows it, and the culture itself isn't going to grieve along with you, then the way uh, what happens is there's going to have to be a hole. There's going to have to be a rent in the system, and there's going to be a big leak, and that leak always comes as war. So it ends up being bloodshed is the sacrifice that goes to make up for the lack of grief, which creates, of course, way, way, way more grief and a lot, lot more grief that can't be grieved because during a war you can't just sit down you know, with your machine gun and start grieving the person you shot or your buddy that just got blown up or the trauma that you sing on all sides or the madness of the whole thing. So you've got to survive, and to survive, you have to have denial. So, you know, it becomes a, a gigantic holy mess. So people say, well, is there any hope? Is there any hope? Yes, there is hope, because as individuals in groups of village-type people, there are ways of doing it, especially when you start young. So, you know, I've been watching this myself. This is why I stopped teaching conferences and why I stopped going into individual prisons and stuff, not because I didn't like the people or what was happening, because I, think, well, I didn't think I was doing much good educating on that level as much as I should say, well, what should a culture actually look like then, you know, instead of saying, well, you know, we can do this and put a Band-Aid on that and I'll be famous and you pay me a lot of money and I get old and just as crazy as you. I don't feel like that. I think maybe what would a real culture look like? What would it really look like? It ain't going to look like what Martin Prechtel says it's going to look like. It's got to generate out of its own spiritual DNA, right out of the people's forgotten past, you know? We don't want the past all over again. We want something new that has a traditional root, that has a gorgeousness of the true beauty of what human soul can make and do. So it's the fingers that we make with our hands, and it's our beautiful eloquence of our voice. 
but all we got it wasn't given to us by some other creature, you know. So grief is one of the first places we can start to begin to realize that grief is love, is, is the biggest thing you can give to whatever you love when you lost it. So it has to be the praise of life. And mm-hmm. so if you don't grieve what you love, then you're dissing what you love, you know. Yeah. And it doesn't honor that wild savage can't be contained. It doesn't honor our bigness. Big animal, plant nature. Yeah. <laughs> I wrote some pretty good books on it, man. There's another one called The Unlikely Piece of Kuchimu Kick. You try that one out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's kind of big, though. I mean, it's terrifyingly big. It's actually useful <laughs> for holding open doors. This little one's not good for much of anything. You can't wound anybody by hitting them with it. It's just really tiny. No. The other one's really dangerous. It's lethal size. Yeah. yeah, no, your big books don't frighten me. Um, yeah, well, <laughs> you ain't read them yet. <laughs> They frighten me, I tell you what. <laughs> so, as we live into that praise, as we start to create, as we as we watch that love, that wildness, that grief morph into beauty, as we create that beauty, that container for praise, how can we now, from where we are right now, begin to bring that into how we live? Because you're right, what we're talking about, what you're, what you're bringing forward, we won't see, and maybe our children will start to see it, and right, this goes on and on long after we're here, because our time here is so short. Uh, how so can weird. we now, from where we are now, start to live into that praise? Well, first of all, the, the thing is to recognize the probability of it. In other words, you have uh, very few people recognizing a need for it. So, first of all, it's to understand that grief is not a therapy. Grief is also not sorrow. Grief is not something to get over. Grief is something that is natural to human beings, natural to animals, natural to plants. It's natural to all life. It doesn't just belong to people. And that if people's lives are that distanced from everything, then it's crazy. So, uh, I've got a chapter now. This is chapter 12. And it addresses some of those things. One is to start to understand what beauty means. Beauty doesn't mean something that makes you feel better. Beauty is to understand the gorgeousness of something, something's natural soul. You know, like, for instance, if you see a grizzly bear padding down the road, you may be stupid enough to just say, well, I better get out of here. But you've got to see those bristles and that red hair through the sun. And it's just, wow, how beautiful that animal is. You know, how beautiful the bat uh, of that foot, how beautiful the, the trail is coming down, how beautiful the trees that are around them. And, you know, you may be eaten by that animal, but it's still beautiful. And, you know, your, your death will have gone for something, perhaps. But most people don't have that kind of courage. And so what uh, I think really begins uh, to, um, to start it is that when you start to realize the, the nature of uh, the colonial mind versus the indigenous mind. In other words, I believe other people have an indigenous soul. I don't believe that indigenous soul is represented in the daily life. I think it's hiding in sort of an inner bigness wilderness and running like hell to keep away from what the people themselves have become. Mm. But I think inside and outside, this indigenous soul knows how to be a person, and it also knows how to be alive, and I don't think it's, it's, it's killable either. You can kill a person, you can kill the ground, but you can't kill what's indigenous in it. You can kill indigenous life forms, but you can't kill what made it happen. So the, the pride that people seem to have in their terrible negative uh, stuff, I mean, you see all these people saying, oh, we're a re- the really superior race. We can com- uh, make you know, weapons of mass destruction. We're terrible, so we might as well just be depressed since we're at the top of the heap. Nothing's going to change, blah, 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 blah. 
I said, no, that's, that's absolute you know, arrogance. Um, hope doesn't come from that. Hope comes from starting to see the basic integers of all the thing, way things work. Because you can't praise properly until you know an awful lot about how things are in the world. So, in other words, if you're going to praise when you uh, discover loss in your life and you don't really have any capacity with it, it isn't because it's your fault. It's because it's not taught that, you know, all of the details of how the, uh, this plant is and how many tail feathers the songbird has, how many tail feathers the raptor has, how many scales, you know, the certain lizards have between their eyes, how does this live, how does that live. How does this thing go? How does the sun work? Everything. If you, the more you know it, then the bigger life becomes, the bigger the praise is, the bigger the beauty is. So if you have no, uh, ever seen the beauty in the first place, you're not going to feel any loss when you lose it at all. So the thing of the arrogance of trying to make culture without actually stopping the culture that we're doing um, is pretty terrible. So I think... Um, the, the way to do with grief is, is that he's going to understand that the individual is not going to cure this. But the fact is, is that um, people are going to have to start getting courageous. I mean, one of the things that was really hard for me when I came back from Guatemala to learn, and I haven't 100% unlearned it yet, is about saying hi to everybody. You know, they think you're some kind of escapee from an insane asylum because in a village, even person you hate, it's unthinkable not to say hi to them. You know, <laughs> everybody has all these greetings, constant greeting. You greet the sun when it comes up. You greet the moon, you greet every person, young, small, old. Even if you don't see them over the walls, you yell, you know, and everybody yells back. And you have all of this constant, it's just like whales with sonar. They're constant back and forth, banging off each other, echoing across, echoing across, echoing across, echoing across. And so one of the things is to begin to see and know where things are and where they're from. With all the cyber things now, people don't know where their cell phone, they don't know where the collodium comes in the Congo, you know, where all of the guys who kill each other get this. So you can have your little iPhone. And, I mean, they just don't know, but they also don't, that's the terror, but they also don't know the grace and the beauty of what it, what it means to have your heart beat more, twice in a row and the sun to come up more than once in a day, once in a, you know, in sequence. So I think uh, two or three things. First of all, uh, there's, there's a couple of places going to sound a little strange probably, but one is it's food and music. Uh, food is one of the strangest things in earth. Because no matter how many imperial and hateful people can come along, you realize that it's not a people, it's not those guys or these guys that are to blame, but a syndrome that gets in there that causes addiction, that the syndrome of modern culture is an addiction. Modern culture is an addiction to modern culture. And that, uh, but sometimes little things like food leak through. And you have all these, you know, Jewish ladies making these great Islamic, you know, food, and, and they both get together, and underneath the radar, all this stuff is happening. And then the other thing is music. You have all the kids, you know, they're always playing music, but most of it's, you know, TikTok, headbanger stuff. And when you really get down to the music of the people of the world, you're going to find it so deeply allied with uh, food. <laughs> That's really uncanny. You realize that all of the... Um, like stringed instruments, all the guitars descend from ladles that are used to, and originally by nomadic, our nomadic ancestors to when they made horse milk, liquor, in order to give gifts to the mountains and to the sun with these beautiful ladles that they put strings across. And then they would call the, the music they made with that, they call it the, the milk, the milk for a holy. And so if you start to learn crazy things like that, then all of a sudden, you know, the loss and life becomes a whole other depth of existence. You're not just wandering around as this anonymous person in this anonymous world, so when you drop, it doesn't matter. 
and the world doesn't matter, all of a sudden the world becomes this amazing place. And so if you live in an amazing place, of course you're taking this huge risk to fall in love with something or the world itself, so that when you lose it, you're going to be so deeply sorrow-stricken, you're going to have to know how to praise in order to survive the loss. And grief is what does the praising to survive the loss. You know, everything wants to heal. The, the grief is what wants to heal all the sorrow. But grief will so easily slip into addiction if uh, nothing else is there to offer it, because it's got to move. Grief does not want to stand still. If grief stands still, it turns to sickness. If grief moves, it can move to violence or it can move to ecstasy. And if it moves to ecstasy, of course, it can turn instantly into addiction, too. It likes to jump into alcohol, heroin, anything else. But the thing is, it doesn't need to if you have enough people around in order to guide it just a little bit. And you say, well, how am I going to do that? You know, I don't even... Uh, I don't even have one friend that would stand there and put up with all of this. Uh, You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. But now looking at that, I also put a chapter in there. I said, you know what? You've got to have a designated non-griever when it comes time to grieve. It's like people have a designated driver when they get too drunk. You've got to have a designated non-griever. And it's the person that's going to watch out for you while you go through it and just not make any books about it, no pontification, doesn't listen to the content and judge it, doesn't analyze it and give you a cycle thing, but just let you do it. And the best place to go for that is at the ocean or in this, where there's no people on a big old desert or in a lake because that, that land is alive, baby, and it's listening because, you know, it's not dead. That, that's the big mother of all life. And most modern people, they can't see that. But when they get to grief, I tell you what, they will see it. They will see it. They will see how alive the world really is. And because that whole, um, you know, rationalist nonsense cracks open. And that's what everyone's afraid of, that they're going to go mad. But they won't go mad because there's something inside you that knows how to do it. But you have to have somebody there to lean on while you go through it. But you don't want to wallow because that's nonsense. That's addiction. Mm. So anyway, I wrote a whole thing on it. You can read it. It's, it's kind of interesting. You can try it out. It's a wonderful. It's a wonderful part of the book. There's a whole that whole um, section about going to the ocean and how to make the offering and how to be there and and mm. and keep yourself in that kind of ritual space. Oh no, I'm getting the big two minute signal that tells me that we're Uh-oh. just. Oh darn it! Um, <laughs> I, I, I tell you, the imperialists are coming. They're coming. <laughs> Hurry they always minutes. catch me. Every, it's There's... either the Pope or them guys. Yeah. <laughs> Martine, thank you so much. We didn't even, I mean, not even scratch the surface. I know. I told you. I, I warned you. I'm, you know, anyway, I'll go make a prayer. Is that right? <laughs> thank you so much, Martine. Gratefully received. Well. Uh, thank you very much for coming on the show. Um, thank you. Thank you. That is Martine Prechtel. His, name, his uh, new book is The Smell of Rain on Dust, Grief and Praise. Please find out more about Martine and his work at floweringmountain.com. That's a wonderful place to find out about all his other books, including the terrifyingly large books. So go and check those out at floweringmountain.com. And of course, I welcome your connection, your comments, your questions at karenhager.com. You can email me there anytime. And thank you for listening today. Together we are spreading a little more light in the world, and a little more light is always a good thing. Until next time, I'm wishing you peace. Peace.